Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week coming to us from Detroit, Michigan, is Sam Bone. Sam always knew she wanted to become a funeral director at a young age, so after graduating from Wayne State University with a degree in mortuary science in 2019, she actually became a licensed funeral director and embalmer in the metro Detroit area. Um, I have rarely been this excited for an appropriate interview for this podcast so with no further delays welcome sam how are you i'm doing well i'm so excited that you're excited i'm excited to be here yeah i was not obsessed with death as a kid but i've obviously been always okay with it and then of course i watched the show on hbo six feet under a lot when i was in my 20s and i am <laughs> like so obsessed with what you do now only because of that show oh yeah i've seen a few episodes but i've never um i've never actually watched the whole thing through yeah well I, it would probably suck for you to watch it <laughs> probably you'd be like that's wrong that's not accurate it definitely brought your occupation to the mainstream for a brief period in the like early 2000s, I think. Yeah. So uh, real quick, how old are you? Where did you grow up? And what generation, if any, do you think you belong to? Um, I'm 26. I grew up, I was, so I was born in Flint, Michigan, um, which is north of Detroit. And then I grew up in a town even further north than that, like 20 minutes north of Flint. Um, it's called Clio. It's really small in Michigan. And um then I moved to Detroit for mortuary school. I was only there for a year, and I didn't really like living there just because um, there are no grocery stores, and it just I was lonely. So um, now I live in kind of the metro Detroit area, um, and I work at a funeral home in the metro Detroit area as well. It's nice. I like it here. Um, I like northern Michigan, too, but it's just like there's not as much to do up there as there is down here. So... Yeah, I'm happy. And then I guess I was born in 1996, so I don't really know. I'm really right in the middle of things in terms of like a millennial versus Gen Z. I guess I would consider myself a millennial, but I don't know. I don't really think about it too much, I guess. Yeah, and I didn't used to think about it. And then one day I started watching like TV show after TV show mentioning it. So I thought it would be a fun question to ask, but I'm always excited when someone's just like, ah, I don't really know. Um, <laughs> and I have no idea. I could not tell you what generation you're in, but yeah, that's, um, that's a good story as far as how you got in. And was your family, were like people surprised that you like that quickly made the decision? Like, Hey, this is what I'm going to do with my life. You know, it was kind of a strange situation. So my grandma died when I was 10 and I guess that's really when I was, it was brought to the forefront of my mind because um, you know, it was the first time I'd ever really been in a funeral home and seen like the people who work there. And I just, I don't remember thinking like, that's what I want to do per se. I just remember thinking like, I just remember seeing them and really admiring what they were doing and thinking like, it's really cool that there are people that are here to do this because it must be hard. And it's hard for me. I can't imagine how hard it is for them to just be running around sweating in a suit. And I think it, like, after that, I just kind of put that away, you know? I mean, I was a kid, so it was easy to just kind of go about life and everything. But then when I was in high school, you know, when you're 16, they start asking you what you think you want to do. And that's really when it kind of resurfaced for me. And I like thought about it and it, it came back up and I thought, you know what, that would be cool if I could maybe get into that. And uh, yeah, then when I did go home and I told my parents, hey, what if I did this? You know, they gave me the like, are you, do you know what they do? Are you, are you sure? <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, I think so. <laughs> oh, wow. That's really cool. Um, 
with this interview, I was trying to think like, how can I pare down the 20 million questions I have? Um, <laughs> one of the reasons I have so many questions is I worked in hospice for many years. And so like, I was in the phase before your phase. And so yeah. very rarely I would go to a client. I shouldn't call them a client. That's a really weird way to refer to them. No, I know. I've said the same thing before and cringed so hard at myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I would go to their funerals. I never once spoke to the funeral director, I, except like when they would tell me like, oh, you're speaking, you have to go over here or something, you know? So it was like, so I, I actually don't have any familiarity with like your role. So I think the first question I really want to ask you, because of the focus of this podcast, it's a weird one, but like, do people mostly grieve in like one of a few different ways? Or are there like really like a drastic difference between how people grieve in your, in your perspective? Oh, no, there's definitely, I mean, everyone is different really and of course there's a lot a lot of the things that I see especially because of the demographic that I I mean of the area that I work in I deal predominantly with you know people who have been on hospice for a really long time they've been sick for a long time and they have really good support systems really good families that love them and have loved them for a very long time so the people that I deal with mostly they grieve but it it's not the, the kind of like high scale grief that you see when someone really young dies, you know, um, it's more of a celebration almost most of the time. Cause when, when someone's 90 and they've been sick for 10 years on hospice for three years, it's everyone's tired. And especially the person that just died is tired and, um, it's always really nice. So it's just, uh, no, it's hard to say. Everyone's totally different and you never know what you're going to get. Is there an inappropriate way to grieve at a funeral? Meaning like if you're like too loud or like crying or something, should you step and walk outside? Like, do you have any like advice for people? You know, that is usually an option because, um, you know, half the time the funeral director is just like sitting in the hallway in a little tiny closet with a bunch of like sound equipment and like, a baby monitor usually with a live feed of the funeral playing through the baby monitor. So really, if you walk out into the lobby during a funeral because you're crying too hard but still want to listen, just go find the funeral director and they're usually listening. Wow, I would. That's so cool. So just life hack. Yeah. It's always. I mean, I always do. And I, I would if I were crying really hard and weeping at a funeral. Of course, I would step out. But um, that's just. I don't know. It's not about you you know it's about everyone it's not necessarily just about the person who died either it's about everyone who's been impacted that's really interesting could, could you kind of expand on that because i think that's very profound like a funeral is not just about the person who died can you kind of elaborate on that yeah i mean it's not and it's not just about the people who surround them either it's about the whole experience i think really i mean one person dying has an impact on so many other people and then the impact that it has on the people, I don't know, it just expands out. And you really see that a lot in funerals because everyone comes and they tell stories about how they met them. And it's just like this big net and this big web and people who come see other people that they know who knew them. It's just very evident that we all have a very shared experience. And that's what it's all about. Have you ever like, unfortunately had like a funeral where you felt really bad cause like no one came and it was just like really awkward? You know, I've had small funerals, none where it's just like no one came, definitely not. But um, yeah, there've been small ones. And the thing is though, the ones with small funerals like that, the more intimate ones, 
you can tell like this is you can the love in the room is usually like palpable honestly like in those cases where like there are very few people because everyone in those cases gets to share their story because if you don't it's kind of weird and awkward <laughs> um yeah so i don't I, I think everyone finds comfort in those kinds of gatherings no matter how big they are cool and then we all know that like you can go to a wedding and you can expect to hear like a really inappropriate best man or best woman speech. Um, have you ever witnessed like an inappropriate funeral speech? Yeah. Hey everyone. If you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us and it's free. That's M I K E Y O P P.com. Thanks. I won't go into specifics, of course, but um, you have been like very like religiously grandstandy, like almost like a, like a frat house rush, just trying to like get people into religion. It's just ridiculous. Has anyone ever like spoken ill of the dead, like on purpose? Like they get up there and you think it's going to be a nice uh, eulogy and then instead. No, that would be pretty crazy. Okay. <laughs> Uh, that should be most of my inappropriate questions. I did want to get back to, um, you said you trained in Detroit. I was curious when you were training, is it kind of like people in college training to be a dentist? Like, do you just like take whatever you can get? Like, do you get like homicide victims and stuff like that? So it's, it was kind of weird my year. So mortuary school in Michigan, it's a bachelor's degree. So I had to do three years of prerequisites and then our, the program is one year. So like three semesters. Yeah. And our, the way that the program was set up is that um, they, they like partnered with local funeral homes, so funeral homes in Detroit that needed refrigeration. So to keep people who aren't going to be embalmed, like in, in a cold temperature before cremation, because you have to have a cremation permit from the county in order to cremate a body. And it takes a while to get those and like, especially in Detroit, just trying to keep all the bodies at a reasonable temperature is challenging. So Wayne State um, had a program with these local funeral homes that like, basically they gave them 24 hour access to their refrigeration in exchange for us being able to do the embalming practice with the permissions, of course, from the families. Yeah, wow. So I started my mortuary program in the fall of 2018. And um, you probably did not hear about this, but in the fall of 2018, um, a few different funeral homes in Michigan and Detroit actually got shut down um, for like improper handling of some remains. And um, you could probably Google it. I don't want to speak too much of it because it's like a, it's just a, not a good thing that happened. And one of the funeral homes that actually got shut down was one of the ones that was using our services, like the refrigeration services. So our embalming lab, three we I did three embalming labs at school and then it got shut down. The lab did. And we didn't do embalmings anymore in the lab at school. The way that we got our embalming experience was by going out into like our clinical. They would they would put us at, at funeral homes to do our like clinicals so we would get experience practically um like with local funeral homes and like funeral directors there and then we had to embalm with them too so that's how people in mortuary school started learning how to embalm instead of from an instructor in a lab setting they were just doing it in a practical setting um with funeral directors wow yeah it was not good because like for me it was fine because i did my in michigan you can do your apprenticeship before mortuary school 
you have the option of doing like a year long apprenticeship before mortuary school or a six month apprenticeship after. And I had been basically I had been embalming um, since I was 19 and I was at the time 22. So I had a lot of experience in that regard. And speaking of experience, um, was like the very first time pretty like easy or is it one of those things where like there is a learning curve and like, and when I say easy, I don't mean like you follow directions correctly. I mean like the psychology of seeing a real live dead body body and then draining fluids from it and all the other stuff that goes into it. Um, it was, yeah, it is hard for sure. Um, like the first time, like the first time you do it, it just does feel weird because it, it couldn't not feel weird. I think that if it didn't feel weird, it would be weird. Um, but really, it, it did start to come more naturally to me, I think, than I anticipated. It A few times in, it was just, um, it was a lot easier to do things by feel as opposed to with my, with my eye, like looking at things. I, I learn more every day, but it's, it's a, it's an easy process for me. Do you ever like find yourself like talking out loud in front of the dead? Like, have you ever had a conversation with them? Like, do they ever look like someone you know? When I do embalm, I, like, if I like accidentally bump them or like move their arm or anything shifts, I'm like, oh, sorry. Oh, my bad. Sorry. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that makes sense to me. Would you embalm someone you love and like be the director of their funeral or is that like a faux pas, no can do? Um, I actually have. I embalmed uh, my uncle with one of my professors, actually. Um, he unfortunately died of a, a, a drug overdose and um, it was a real shock. And we ended up, he ended up using the funeral home that I uh, did my apprenticeship at. And my professor at the time, because I was in mortuary school when this happened, and my restorative arts professor offered to come with me, and he embalmed with me, and he actually didn't even charge. So it was really nice of him, and it was nice to be able to do that, honestly. It was like a nice final act of something good that I could do for him, especially after not seeing him for a while. That's Honestly, that's really sweet and endearing. I just like felt moved, so thank you. That was really special. And I think um, we're going to segue into the other side of the show, which is asking you what your philosophy on death is and how it affects life. But before we switch gears, like, because that's a pretty sudden shift for this kind of interview, um, I did want to know, this is crass, and some people might think I'm a jerk for asking this as well, but funerals can be very expensive, and a lot of people don't plan on them, and then they find themselves guiltily staring at, like, someone with a clipboard with all sorts of coffin options and other things. Um... What would you suggest to people as far as like if you're in your 20s or 30s, like should you plan and set aside money for your own funeral? Uh, is there like a budget or a number you think? And is there like, is it rude to like get the cheapest models at the, t- you know, with the director? Can you just kind of walk us through the economic side of all that? Yeah. So um, the best probably thing to do is prearrange your funeral. And the reason I say that is just because um, in Michigan, at least, the prearrangement laws, we can't. We can't keep any of the funds that we um, that we take for prearrangement in our own account. We have to like purchase an insurance policy or put it in a trust until the person dies, and that kind of accumulates interest. And um, what it does, it like making your prearrangement and pay, paying for it now guarantees the prices now. And um, so, you know, ten years from now, if you pass away and the price. Um, cremation with a memorial service then is $2,000 higher, 
you wouldn't have to pay that 2000 because you were guaranteed a rate much lower years before in your pre-arrangement. And then the, the funds that had been accumulating interest over the years, that difference is kind of what helps offset the cost of the funeral home to guarantee those prices. So my two-part question for you as we segue into the more metaphysical side of this interview is, one, what do you think happens to you when you die? You specifically, Sam Bone. And then two, as a corollary to that, what is your dream funeral for yourself? <laughs> you know, I um, I don't know what happens when I die. I really don't. And I cannot find it in me to care too much. Cool. So yeah. I don't really think about it too much. As surprising as that sounds, I don't think about my death almost ever. I'm too busy thinking about everyone else's. Yeah, yeah. Would you prefer to be cremated? Do you imagine yourself in a coffin? Do you have any opinions on that kind of stuff? I don't either. I really, um, the, to me, what I think that needs to happen to me when I when I die is that my the people who love me get what they need. So if that's um, having me embalmed and put in a casket and laid out for all my uh, high school bullies to come see and pretend they cared about me <laughs> so be it um i don't really feel that's necessary but if they do then let's do it i just want to have closure for the people who need it that's what i'm most concerned about whatever my family needs it's funny because i think closure is like the magical word for all that and i think that is the whole point of funerals i i'm not a death historian we have one coming up um in a couple weeks but um i imagine actually by the time this airs that will already have come out but yeah i imagine each culture has like a different practice but the they have to all be designed for closure so do you ever think about like the dead bodies in front of you like do you ever wonder like what's happening to them or if like they have a soul and it's in that room with you or it already left do you ever think about any of that kind of stuff i do sometimes you know i mean at first it was more of like uh like i would do something in the press room and be like oh man thank god they can't feel that and then my anxiety is like how could you possibly know that you know but um these days you know yeah i, I think there are just like certain things that happen in the moment when you're with a dead body alone that make you think that or make you feel that who they are, their soul, their spirit or whatever. You know, I'm open to it. Yeah. Have you ever um, seen a dead body before it was like formally brought to you? Meaning like, have you been at the site of a car accident, like any of that kind of stuff? And do you think that would affect you differently if you did? Um, I don't know. I really don't. I guess the only way that I would be able to tell is being being there. But it, it does always affect me when I go into someone's home, you know, to go and get them from their home. That does play a role. It's kind of strange just to see how they, you know, you go in and you see what they were, they were just living and doing. This is kind of a dumb question because in hospice, it was always different. But like when you get the bodies, do they already have like the eyes closed or do they ever have the eyes open? No, usually their eyes are open a little bit and, you know, they're, you, you die how you die. So if your eyes are closed, then yeah, they usually stay closed. But even if they do die with them closed, sometimes they just, you know, you just relax. So if you're relaxed, it just happens. So do you ever like, when you're alone in the room, do you shut their eyes or is it like not creepy? <laughs> well, the thing is like, sometimes it's hard to get them to shut. Okay. You know, you, you do it and then they come back open. So the way that we like, we have to um, actually put these little like lenses in and the lenses have these little, like, um, it looks just like a contact, except it has like these little ridges in it. And they were just kind of point down and you put them in and they kind of latch on to the inside of the eyelid and pull it downward so that it closes the eye a little better. 
this is a bizarre question I didn't even think I was going to ask, but it just somehow came to mind. Um, in, in mortuary school, did they train you for this slash has this ever happened to you? What if you get a body and then you suspect foul play and like you notice something? Has that ever happened or do they talk about that? You know, it's never happened to me and they didn't really talk about it too much. But the way that uh, things are vetted, especially in the county that I'm in, I'm in Oakland County in Michigan and Oakland County, they um, they have things. They're very organized here. And it's in terms of mistakes the the exam, medical examiner's office here i don't think what i i would feel confident saying that that would probably never happen to me but i do know people who have received like um they received someone from the medical examiner's office and in the in the like bag with the, the person was like a syringe oh god yeah so like that kind of thing I don't really know what comes of that. I guess the only thing, if it did ever happen to me where I was like, oh my gosh, what if this person was murdered? I probably would just call the medical examiner and be like, hey, <laughs> do you think maybe and see where it goes? But usually they, uh, so like any, any case where someone dies at home, um, not under hospice, the medical examiner's office comes out and looks anyway to make sure everything's kosher before they call us. So by the time I'm getting the body, I people people who would be in charge of making that call have already looked into things. Cool. So keep in mind, I'm like 15 years older than you, and so I'm way the hell out of the scene. But I imagine being as young as you are, you said you were 26, and you might be married already, but when you were like dating or when you are dating, is it like something you want to tell them up front that your occupation is this, or is it something you can just kind of casually mention? Do you have any like funny stories about that? Does it ever come up? <laughs> Yeah, well, um, I have dated funeral directors in the past, so that is pretty, I mean, you really, if you do that, you back yourself into a corner because you really only ever talk about work because it's all you, you know, <laughs> but whenever I have new friends or anything and I tell them I'm a funeral director, it's always like, um, no one ever believes me at first. I'm not sure why. <laughs> um, and then yeah it's just it, they always have the obvious questions you embalm the bodies do they ever breathe <laughs> that kind of stuff wow <laughs> i like to end things on a really positive note so what's um what's like the most beautiful funeral you've ever directed that's a good question oh my gosh it's so hard i wish because like i want it to the answer to be perfect probably a man had died in a car accident and um the way that medical examiner's offices a lot of the times portray things to the family is they usually take a look at um you know the remains and of course the family wants to know if they're going to be able to see them for the last time and sometimes when the people answering that question don't know what funeral directors necessarily can do in the terms of like restoring and like actually doing like cranial reconstruction and making it okay to view people who've had traumatic injuries they like make things sound worse than they are if that makes sense so this family they were told um they were told that it was going to be probably a closed casket by the people that they spoke with and they came to us very upset this was years ago and they just they they couldn't even he had three daughters that were my age and my sister's age and like he had a wife that looked like my mom and yeah, it's it just like one of those things where I'm sitting at the, the table with them and it just feels like 
it's my, like, this could very easily be my family, you know? So in those kinds of situations, I really kind of, I don't know, it's hard not to latch on, if that makes sense, and really want to do everything you can to make sure that they have the most positive experience they they possibly can. So we were able to do, like, reconstruct. First of all, the guy was not even that bad. <laughs> like, it, it, it never should have been told what they were told in the first place. Um, and it was kind of sad that they were because they didn't need to go through that. But he looked great. And um, it just was wonderful to be able to, like, see and give them that. And he had a great funeral, huge turnout. And um, I don't know, it's just, it's amazing to be able to provide that opportunity to people to see them one last time, especially in situations where the last time that they did see them, they had no idea that was going to be the last time. That's, that is truly beautiful. And that's really awesome. And I really understand because uh, one hospice experience reminded me of that. And it was just like special to, to just like bond and kind of see yourself in these situations. And, you know, and that's kind of, I think the point of the show actually is to get people to start thinking about how death is not something to be feared. It's not something that we need to like worry about so much as it's something that is going to happen and, and we're all connected. And so you started the interview by saying that actually. So I always end the interviews by letting the guest um, have the floor. So whatever you want to say, it can be about life and death. It can be about funerals. It could be about anything you want, but uh, you have the floor. um well i would probably just like to use this time to say that it's important to get your um affairs in order in terms of who is the one that's going to take care of your funeral um especially if you're in like a relationship a long-term one with a life partner that isn't your spouse um it's important to get that kind of thing worked out so that the person that you want in charge of making the final decisions about what happens to you is the person that's um, able to authorize everything after death, especially for cremation, because um, most of the time your next of kin has to sign and say it's okay. That's really good advice, and I want to be cremated, and I am married, but I will definitely tell Alana that after this, um, just in case she's any part of her is confused. <laughs> I definitely will. Um, thank you so much. This was a really great interview. You're a really good human. I can just tell. Um, I'm I'm very glad that the uh, greater area of Michigan. I'm glad that they have you there. And uh, by the way, she's giving free funerals to anyone in the area. No, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, no, thank you again so much for coming on the show and helping us put another nail in the coffin. Um, to everyone listening at home, as always, this has been another episode of Coffin Talk. You know where to find us, but just in case, go to MikeyOp.com and hit the big button podcast. And please, please, please subscribe. For everyone listening, we hope you enjoyed hearing Sam explain so many interesting things about the actual literal process of death and dying in America, and uh, we will see you soon. Walking alone Walking alone When I hear this song And I'm walking to you